Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. It's Violet here. For this week's episode, you need to strap on your armour and brace yourself for battle. From the monumental ruins of strongholds like Conwy and Dover, to the fantastical turrets of Hogwarts, castles are an important element in our vision of the past. They played a vital role in history as centres of defence and political power, the physical foundation of royal and noble authority. This week, we are travelling through time with the acclaimed architectural historian John Goodall, whose lifelong passion for medieval architecture of all shapes and sizes began while he was a student at Durham University. His new book, The Castle, A History, tells the stories of these influential buildings through a series of riveting snapshots at various moments in their history. In this episode, John takes us to visit several important castles in the year 1217, a turbulent moment in English history when rebel barons had asked the French King Louis for help in their struggle against the notoriously bad King John. In the ensuing civil war, castles played a vital role as centres of defence, so much so that John demanded his knights to destroy them rather than see them falling into French hands. John Goodall is the architectural editor of Country Life, He has been involved in various television series on history and architecture, and his books include God's House at Uelm, The English Castle, Parish Church Treasures, English House Style, and this new one, The Castle, A History. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Uh, Welcome to Travel Through Time, John. Well, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, So today we're going to be talking about your really beautiful book, The Castle, A History, um, which is, it's very unusual. I really like the structure of it. And I wondered to kick off, could you just explain how you structured it and how you decided to to, to write it in this way? Well, I suppose I was trying to do two things. The first thing was to tell the story of the castle, not just in the Middle Ages, which is the period we tend to associate castles with, but right through to the present day. And to write really, in in one sense, um, a book about the idea of the castle and how it still touches us and affects us today. But the other thing, I mean, as an architectural historian, I endlessly spend my time turning the buildings I love into words. And uh, it's absurd in a way. Um, I decided rather than just writing, you know, a, a narrative history in my own words, what I would try to do was to select effectively little anecdotes of life or episodes relating to castles from uh, fiction and factual accounts from right through the period covered by the book. In other words, you know, in fact, the earliest um, thing is from, I think, the the, the, the first century um, AD, <laughs> and it goes all the way through uh, to the present day. So I was trying to um, really choose these little uh, texts written by the people who saw the events they were describing or who were 
directly touched by them. So 12th century voices to write about 12th century castles, 15th century voices to write about 15th century castles, 20th century voices to write about 20th century castles. And obviously this approach requires a little bit of explanation and padding. So what I've done is I put together a whole series of short chapters, each of which has an introduction. There's then a quotation from a letter, a book, a novel, a poem, and then um, a, a kind of discussion of what it means and what we can learn from the way in which the writer has perceived castles. So it's really a, a, a kind of collection of anecdotes that tell the story across time. And in, in amongst the textual things, there are, of course, one or two buildings, images, photographs of buildings, uh, because um, architecture, I think, arguably brings us closer to the experience of the past than anything else you know we, we can still stand in spaces that were known to people in the 11th 12th 13th centuries and so I wanted also there to be the visual evidence too because I think that's very important and we often overlook it so in short it's trying to bring together lots of um, uh, historic material and organize it and let it speak for itself so that we hear the story of the castle in many different voices. Well, I think you did that so successfully, and um, I love the, the the idea that you know you're describing physical places and and historical events, but then also you know towards the end of the book you talk about the Disney Castle and the Hogwarts Castle, which uh, you know it, it's such a nice way of of thinking about it, sort of bringing it up to the present. And castles do certainly for our our children play a huge um, role as a sort of imaginary device. So talk a little bit about that, because I really enjoyed those two chapters. Those two chapters. Well, I suppose one of the points I'm also trying to make uh, in the book is that castles, you know, uh, have uh, different realities. I mean, we tend to think of history as, you know, finding out what really happened. And of course, that's true. And part of what the book is trying to do is root real events, real people in real places that we can identify with. But it's also important to understand that castles very quickly after their first construction on a grand scale in, in England in the 11th and 12th centuries, they become sort of rooted in the history of, 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 the, of the kingdom. They become part of its legendary past. They have imaginary histories built up around them. You know, Windsor is thought of as, as the seat of King Arthur in the 14th century. And, and the Tower of London, even by the 13th century, is being described as a, as a Roman building constructed by Julius Caesar. And so castles, as it were, have a, a living function, but they also have, they, you know, very early on, they capture people's imagination. They became the bones of the kingdom. And in fact, what happens in the 18th century is in some ways, and, and, and the invention of the Gothic novel and the romanticization of history, is that that legendary past takes on a new life. And, you know, th things such as um, Hogwarts are, in fact, in many ways, they are, you know, Gothic novel castles. They're settings um, in which, you know, contemporary fiction is set. Uh, but they, th the fact that they're castles is important. It, it allows the, um, uh, the, the episode or, or the episodes within them to be um, exciting and, you know, suffused with magic because castles are that. And I suppose at the very end, when I talk about the Disney castle, the point that I make is that the Disney castle is this extraordinary thing. It's a it has a global reach everybody recognizes it as a castle you know at the beginning of films when it's shown but there's a deep irony because in fact it's you know invented to appeal to an american audience and many of whom had never seen a real castle um in the sense of a physical castle that was lived in so um 
oddly, they think of it as a, 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 as a place of fantasy and a, an object of fantasy, the start of a wonderful story. Um, and that has historical integrity. I mean, that's what people have always seen in castles. But we in Europe see the same building and think of it as having, uh, think of castles as being vested in the historical past and having a reality. We see them, in fact, both ways, I think. We see them in Europe both as real historical things, but also as places of fantasy and wonder. And those two traditions, I think, are very important, and they run right back to the Middle Ages. And I think you could say that for some American people, Disney, it is, it's sort of their version of the cultural heritage that we have, that we would associate with, you know, the medieval period. I certainly had that experience when I was visiting Disney World. There was a lot of, you know, adult couples there. They weren't there with their children. They were there because this was a place of pilgrimage for their own culture. So it's quite an interesting sort of... Um... Yes, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think it's fascinating and it reflects the way that castles are sort of still bound into our imagination. They have a, you know, a, a, as it were, a historical past, but also an imagined past. We, we do, uh, uh, and I suppose it's true to say, you know, when you visit castles generally um, across uh, Britain uh, and Europe, you know, our ignorance about them is as startling as our knowledge you know, and um, the fact that these rather gaunt ruins sometimes can have been the places where, th you know, real things happen, real people lived. Um, it, it, it sometimes isn't important, but when it, of course, when you can work that out, it's terribly exciting. Um, I visited, for example, a, a castle in France a few years ago, um, and uh, there was cut into the window a graffito of the date of, the, uh, of a birth that had taken place in the 15th century in the windowsill. And it was the name of the mother and the child who'd been born there, and the fact that the birth, the birth had been given in this window. And in a ruin of a castle, it just felt completely bizarre to be confronted by this space where extraordinary things had happened. That, of course, would definitely have made it into the book if it had been in Britain, but it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, those wonderful, those details that sort of bring history to life and re re reduce the gap between us and them. So I think before we go any further, what we really would need, need is a definition of what a castle is. And in your book, you um, quote from, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Aylred, was, was he who gave, gave a sermon and he describes that, that a castle has to have three things a ditch a wall and a tower so how do you define a castle conventionally a castle has been defined as the fortified private residence of a nobleman and as a definition that works really well for the castles of the 12th and 13th centuries in England but I think you need a broader definition of this because in fact people have been calling buildings castles you know right through to the 20th century so we indeed we still do uh, call certain buildings castles and they're not necessarily defensible at all and in, historically i suppose people have chosen to call uh, 12th and 13th century castles real castles because they're genuinely defensible but that implies that everything else is in some sense a kind of fake and I think that as historians, it's our obligation to explain why people called things castles rather than to preach to the past about why they got it wrong. <laughs> so I would advocate, in fact, a rather broader definition of the castle. I would say a castle is a building of a nobleman that is that, that makes use of the trappings of fortification. 
battlements, towers, things that make it look magnificent, but it doesn't necessarily have to be um, actually functional. And indeed, there's quite a lot of scholarly literature, of course, about uh, castles where people discuss whether particular arrow slits or battlements would have functioned. And it seems to me a, a, a completely redundant um, area of discussion. I think this idea that castles are, in fact, you know, buildings made magnificent through the trappings of fortification, that's at the heart of what they are. Um, and of course, the people who live in them often aspire to you know, knighthood as a vocation, and you know they're buildings that that represent in a way social ideals um, as well as um, uh, as well as the, the physical needs of defence. So they have um, various different roles, as you say. Basic, you know, they could be used for actual defence, and um, I know that the particular places we're going to be talking about in a minute um, that was the case. But then there's also this sort of symbolic. Uh, power that they represent for whoever lives there. That's absolutely right. I mean, two things, I suppose, also to add to that. It is quite surprising to realise how people every now and again still do build castles to be defensible. There's certainly, you know, 18th and 19th century examples of these buildings. They weren't really intended to form you know, to, to be defences in, in, in large-scale war, but they were intended to be defensible in terms of civil unrest, you know, where, with a mob outside. So, so that there is a sort of tradition that continues in that in that regard. But I mean, I think it's also important to acknowledge that, you know, in particularly in the 19th and the 18th century, people build castles very, very busily. They dress up their existing built houses as castles because it says they think it says something about them um, and of course um, later scholars and indeed some contemporary writers people like the architect uh, Pugin were very critical of this they felt it was absurd that people would dress up a, a Georgian house as a castle they thought it was ridiculous but um, nevertheless they did want castles and very often the, the grandest 18th and 19th century castles are often created by Tory noblemen um, who, who want to advertise through their buildings you know their connections with the established and historic social and political order um, you know, in, in Britain. So there is a kind of fascinating idea of what the castle tells people about you um, a, a, as an owner. And then there was this other um, trend, I think maybe a bit later on in the Victorian period, for building not just castles, but building the ruins of castles. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, castles are marks of an antiquity and lineage and land holding. And of course, there are some people who um, want castles to identify, you know, they use castles as a means of sort of expressing their own and the antiquity of their lineage. It, it does involve one of these great sort of leaps of imagination that, you know, even into the mid 19th century, if you wanted to exercise political power, one of the attributes you needed to have was ancestry. I mean, it seems mad today, but the ancestry dignified you in some way, that you stood with all your ancestors behind you um, as, as a figure, and that that lineage was itself enough to justify your authority. And therefore, people were very keen on having castles or or, or, or it would even build, I mean, um, uh, one of the examples I give in, in the book is a Wentworth Castle in Yorkshire, where there's a, a, in many ways a very obscure dispute over a title and property in Yorkshire and a competition between two buildings, um, between the two competitors for these things. One Wentworth Woodhouse, which is arguably one of the largest neoclassical houses ever constructed, and uh, Wentworth Castle. And Wentworth Castle, is an 18th century Baroque house, but just behind it on the hill, there is constructed 
a castle as as a ruined folly, which is actually um, treated as as the sort of origins of the family. So the, when they built this baroque house they also build themselves a castle which sort of dignifies um their connection with the landscape um and uh, it has four towers each of which represents a member of the family um and uh, i mean it's a completely extraordinary thing this use of castles as a as a as a dignifier of a family and an individual that's so interesting and it sort of plays into the whole question of Built, which I know you're very much involved with, of building conservation and, um, you know, if you, how how we view castles and, and how we um, encounter them today. And one of the things I found interesting was um, that you wrote about was the reconstruction of the the bedroom. Was it the king's bedroom in Dover Castle? And they, you know, really used enormous sort of scholarly effort to reconstruct the furniture and to because I think a lot of us go, you know, you go to Conwy Castle or one of those enormous monumental ruined structures and it's just impossible to imagine it ever feeling cosy or homelike or, uh, you know, like somewhere you'd actually want to be, where of course they were. They were, you know, they were the sort of centres of wealth and food and comfort um, in their period. So, can you talk about that? Because I think it's a very interesting question of how we reconstruct the past and how we, you know, give people the opportunity to imagine themselves back. I don't know. As a historian, it's something I just obsess about all the time, imagining how, what it would have been like, what would it have looked like. Well, I think it's a really important question to ask all the time, isn't it? And of course, you, while asking it, you must also acknowledge the limitations of what we can ever know. But I mean, something like the work at Dover, and there have been other reconstructions of castle interiors, you know, at Stirling uh, and uh, at the Tower of London and in, in, in what is now familiar as Traitor's Gate, of an attempt to reconstruct a late 13th century room, um, as Edward I would have known the interiors. It is important to, you know, to recognise that these buildings included luxurious residences, that they were the places where the very richest in medieval society lived. I mean, of course, castles arguably have always been the residences of the very, very richest people. And um, th th there is a sort of certain continuity at, let's say, a place like Windsor. You know, you have a living piece of history. It's a building that has been a major castle and continues to be called a castle, but it has been updated at every stage in its history. And um, it, the fact that it's a castle says something very special about the person who lives there. It is our head of state, our sovereign who lives there. So there's a sort of consistent theme that these places are great, luxurious residences in every period. But of course, they don't, um, in, in the Middle Ages, and in, indeed into the 17th century, people, powerful noblemen, tend to travel with all their possessions with them. And so they are unpacking whenever they come and stay in a castle they're using it as a kind of almost a, like a theatrical stage set you know they dress the interior of the room for the period they're there they have all their personal possessions around them because they're on the move all the time and when they move on their servants dismantle the interior and move it on to the next place they're staying at um, and what's been done at dover is an attempt to evoke what that interior looked like you know, in the 12th century when Henry II uh, uh, visited. As I point out in the book, there are all kinds of problems with these kinds of reconstructions, not least that if you're Henry II and you control an empire stretching from the Pyrenees to Ireland, you have in your possession objects of a value and quality 
that no heritage organization can recreate. So these reconstructions, while they give a you know very accurate and interesting uh, attempt, well, they, while they offer a very interesting reconstruction of an interior, ironically, if someone from the 12th century walked into that space, they probably wouldn't recognize it as a king's residence at all. But they're very helpful for us to try and remind <laughs> us of exactly this point that, you know, these are residences as well. Yeah. Um, well, before we get into our time machine, I just want to ask you one question, which might be almost impossible for you to answer. But I wonder, do you have a favourite castle? Well, I suppose I I do. I mean, uh, the different periods of my life, I've been very lucky to have close connections with particular buildings. And I suppose I was at university at Durham and I was in my college was the castle. And that sort of has to be my favourite castle because I you know, lived within it and got to know it very, very well when I was at university. And that was really marvellous. And I go back there every now and again with enormous pleasure uh, to see it. And it's a building that, you know, has everything from the 11th century uh, chapel, the Norman chapel, you know, all the way through. It's rebuilt in the 17th century after the Civil War. It has, uh, it's adapted in the 19th century when it becomes a university college. It has the whole kind of gamut of evolution and development uh, that, uh, you know, that, that I'm fascinated by. And crucially, it's still lived in. Because I think many people think of castles as being you know, either ruins or non-existent. And I suppose also from, you know, I work for Country Life and I'm visiting houses and buildings all the time, lived in castles are not an unusual phenomenon. And there are even families such as the Barclay family that can claim direct descent of living in a castle, Barclay Castle, from the 12th century. So there are, it's not just English heritage ruins and National Trust ruins. Um, uh, it, there is a, a, you know, that there is beside those, these wonderful buildings that have stayed in use. And, and for me, Durham, obviously, is someone that I stayed, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And I love it. And presumably that was what, one of the places which um, ignited your passion for architecture. Indeed, I think, I, I think, I think so. It's, it's hard, it's hard not to be moved by, I mean, I think it's an enormous privilege to live in, but when in Britain, we often underestimate how privileged we are to be able to live with history in the way we do. And, yeah. um, uh, and it's easy to look through, but it is formative, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wonderful. So um, now, John, I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, uh, which is, if you could travel back in time to a particular year in history, which year would it be? Well, I thought for the purposes of talking about castles, it would be really interesting, and I would be fascinated too, to go back to the year 1217, when we get the impression of how castles operate in a great national crisis. So this is, as it were, ignoring many of the themes that I've talked about, about later castles and the idea of the castles. Going back to uh, an episode that not enough English people know about, I think, um, uh, a, a moment of crisis where very nearly um, we hand the, the crown of England to the heir to the French throne. <laughs> and, and there's this sort of extraordinary, and this, this is the culmination of um, uh, this crisis in which there's a great civil war and eventually... Henry III, as we will discover, uh, a young boy of nine is crowned King of England. OK, so this is the first barren civil war, isn't it? And it's been 
started mainly because Magna Carta has not. <laughs> it's all a legacy, <clears throat> essentially, of, of Magna Carta, you know, signed June the 15th, 1215. King John has no intention of abiding by the terms of this document. He immediately sends to the Pope, giving a very dubious account of things, and has tries to get the get Magna Carta quashed. And there is immediately um, a civil war. And um, so, you know, the, the fighting really starts uh, in, in 1215. Uh, and the, the, it's a struggle, effectively, between a group of rebel barons and the king, who, you know, you need to understand that John has already acquired a reputation for, you know, ruthlessness, cruelty, <laughs> um, and, and you know, lechery, uh, all kinds of things. I mean, he's a pretty tough character. He's also, in a way, a very brilliant one. I mean, he, he he's capable of enormous bursts of energy. Um, and uh, the fighting, I mean, I, I feel we can sort of summarize it up to a point. He, he um, in May 1216, a whole series of really important things happen. The first thing is that uh, the rebel barons, realizing that they can't really deal with John by themselves, they invite Prince Louis, the son of the French king, to England to be crowned king of England. The same wind that brings Prince Louis to England with his fleet of 800 ships, he lands at Thanet with an army, it also brings to England the papal legate, a man called Gualo. And this is important because John immediately puts um, the kingdom in the care of the papacy. And Gualo becomes an incredibly important figure in backing what becomes the royalist cause for John and for his son, um, the, the young, uh, well, the future, um, Henry III. Now, when Louis arrives, it looks as though it's just going to be a walkover. You know, he walks into London on June the 2nd and is welcomed into the city. And then he marches west. He immediately takes Winchester. And um, he basically, oh, he seems to have really taken control of the bones of the kingdom already in the south. John, meanwhile, is frantically issuing orders that everybody should destroy all castles <laughs> that they control. Because he doesn't want Louis taking hold of castles and uh, you know, basically holding on to the kingdom. Was was that a normal kind of policy? Was that a normal well, policy? It's, that sounds a little bit mad. He knows that he can't hold the castles against Louis, so he thinks he'd rather okay. destroy them. Okay. And that is actually, it's a tactic that's used uh, in the 14th century in Scotland by the Scots very successfully uh, against the English. You know, if you can't hold castles against people, you just get rid of them altogether. Mm. Um, but it's also quite clear that... It's pretty clear that nobody follows John's instructions. I mean, for example, he tells the constable of Porchester Castle in Hampshire that he must destroy the building. Well, I mean, you can go to Porchester today and you can see that nobody destroyed anything. So Louis is kind of putting his, his tentacles into the kingdom. But three major castles hold out in favour of John. And this is sort of going to be of huge significance. So these are Windsor, Dover and Lincoln, um, which hold out against French forces. Now, if we sort of fast forward, Louis, Prince Louis invests Dover and he tries to capture the castle. And we have this wonderful description from a document called uh, the, the, the History of the Dukes of Normandy and the Kings of England of the details of the siege at Dover. But basically he fails to get in. He tries to undermine the walls, sets up catapults, um, and he fails to get in. And eventually he raises the siege and he goes off and tries to do other things um, a, 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 a 
elsewhere. Now, King John, crucially, dies on October the 8th, 1216. And his death is going to change absolutely everything about the Civil War. Because with him gone, his son, who's you know a, 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 a politically unobjectionable, Henry III, is now pushed to the fore, both by the papal legate Gualo and the, the sort of um, flower of English chivalry, the rather aged uh, um, Marshal, William Marshall, the Earl of Pembroke. And they then begin to back the king's cause. Now, there's more campaigning towards the end of the year, but let's get to 1217. Okay, so shall we go to your first scene? So the first scene is on the 20th of May, 1217, when Prince Louis, who's returned to England after a period away, uh, is persuaded by the Earl of Winchester to divide his army and send part of his army northwards to relieve a castle at Mount Sorrel. William Marshall and, uh, sees in the division of Louis's army an opportunity for a battle himself, and he gathers an English army, a royalist army at Newark, and he marches on, um, uh, on Lincoln, where there's a, a Prince Louis's forces are also, they've gathered together to besiege the castle at Lincoln, which of course has held out since the previous year. And there is, um, uh, uh, on the 20th of May, this battle in the city of Lincoln called the Fair of Lincoln. But it's a very brutal um, episode, it takes place largely within the walls of the city, where the garrison is partly reinforced from outside, but um, parts of William Marshall's army managed to break into the north gate of the city. And there's a furious battle within Lincoln itself. And the royalist forces effectively take the, the uh, Prince Louis forces Prince is not present, but the, as it were, the, the rebel forces by surprise. And we have lots of details of the fighting, such as the fact that one of the people firing a catapult at the castle from inside the walls of the city mistakes the royalist troops for his own side. And so he carries on firing his catapult and he shouts the equivalent of ready, steady. And instead of shouting fire, somebody chops his head off as they ride through. The, the forces there are driven after bitter fighting, but without very many casualties, incidentally, because curious, one of the curiosities of this is that everybody knows one another. Um, the rebel forces flee down what's known as Steep Hill. Um, it's a very, very steep hill if you've ever <laughs> walked up it. And they come to a gate at the bottom and the gate won't let everybody through. And there is a terrible sort of massacre um, of, of people uh, you know, within, within, within the city. So though many of the noble families are all interrelated and so they don't kill each other. I mean, it's a, a very strange uh, form of warfare in which you, know, you have uh, little people and then the important people. Only one significant person is killed, the Count of Persh, and we're told that he's killed through a wound in his eye when he's fighting underneath the cathedral. Um, again, this is a spot you can stand on and see. It's, it's, it's very remarkable indeed. So what I want to establish is that King John has died, but Louis is still trying to, pursuing his claim to the English throne, even though a lot of the barons who originally asked him to come and help are now saying, actually, we're going to support the nine-year-old Henry. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And one of the great problems that Louis has throughout this is that King John has alienated lots of people. And Louis benefits from this. But when he comes to England, he not only has to keep these people on side, but he also has to reward his own French followers, all of whom want property and land and rewards. So he has to strike this really careful balance between, you know, looking after these disaffected barons, 
but also finding something to give his own his own people. And of course, what actually ultimately does for his cause is that when King John has died, lots of people think, well, I do much better to go back to Henry III, his son. I mean, he's much more likely to look after my interests. And I don't want these, you know, these Frenchmen coming along and taking what I want myself. Yeah. So there's a, a sort of tension there that, that Louis that actually undermines Louis's cause in the end. From romantically crumbling ruins to elegant stately homes, castles are evocative monuments to wealth and power. If our conversation with John has inspired you to explore, why not join a trip organised by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours? Take in dramatic fortresses on the Welsh coast, sail beneath picturesque rocky outcrops along the Danube and revel in the splendour of the Chateau of the Loire Valley. ACE has over 60 years of experience in group cultural travel, with tours hosted by expert lecturers and covering subjects including art and architecture, music, natural history and archaeology. Highlights on tours this year include a private overnight stay at Glynn Castle in Ireland, a special visit to the remarkable art collection at Longford Castle in Wiltshire, and an exploration of Japan's oldest surviving castle at Inuama. To find out more, visit the ACE website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Okay, so let's move on to your second scene, which is another battle, this time in Sandwich. It's another battle in Sandwich, and it, it, essentially, Louis goes back to invest Dover because Dover Castle is interrupting his communications with the continent. He can't get supplies. He can't get reinforcements. But he can't ultimately break it. And he hears news of what's happened at Lincoln, and he kind of realises that it's pretty much over. But he has one last throw of the dice, and that is a group of uh, French reinforcements which are going to sail across the Channel. And William Marshall and the Justiciar of England and the Constable of Dover Castle, William de Burr, they decide that they're going to intercept and destroy this French reinforcement fleet. And um, again, we're told in great detail this French fleet sailing out of uh, across the across the Channel with a, a man called Eustace the Monk, a renegade monk in command as the admiral. And there's a, even a trebuchet on one of the um, a, a catapult on one of the ships and great castles of timber built on the ships themselves. And the English have a sort of smaller fleet led by Hubert de Burr, and what they do is they sail behind the French, and we're told that the French jeer at them because they think the English are running away. And then when they got behind them and they have the wind in their favour, the English then bear down on the French fleet. And there is again very bitter fighting. Um, they uh, The English throw pots of pulverised lime onto the uh, French ships. And these, of course, blind the people who are on them. Oh, how awful. And uh, we're told that uh, Eustace the monk himself, after his great ship with its trebuchet is captured, there's a, um, he runs into the bilges and he's pulled out by this man called Cave, who has a personal vendetta against him. And he's given the choice. 
he pleads for his life and he's told you have a choice of having your head chopped off on the side of the ship or on your trebuchet and we're not told which he chooses but his head is carried back to sandwich in triumph and uh, the, the the money uh, one on um, the sort of booty is used in fact it's, it's fought on St Bartholomew's Day and it is used to found a, a, a hospital that still exists an almshouse that still exists to this day so this is my second episode another rather uh, brutal battle but this is the end of prince louis cause he knows when this is when this defeat has been inflicted that he really can't win anymore and i think everybody else realizes the same and so does he head back to france limps back with what whatever whoever he has left around him well he actually behaves with enormous dignity he goes back to london and my third episode is the 12th of September, 1217, which is where he, after considerable negotiation, he actually uh, comes to a peace agreement with uh, Henry III, William Marshall, the papal legate Gualo, and, and, the, and Henry III's mother, in fact, the Queen, is again a very important um, a figure in, in this. They come to uh, an island uh, on the Thames uh, near Kingston, and they negotiate the deal, whereby actually Prince Louis tries to protect most of his followers as well as he can. The one group of people he doesn't manage to protect are the churchmen who have supported his cause in England. Uh, the papal legate is determined to punish them. And indeed, in St Paul's Cathedral, in the aftermath of this peace agreement, they burn all the vestments and smash all the chalices uh, because and the liturgical instruments because London had backed Prince Louis. But the agreement is reached on the 12th of September, but curiously, it's not signed on the 12th of September because Gualo also insists that Prince Louis arrive wearing only his underwear as a mark of sort of hum humility, humiliation, really, <laughs> to show that he's been in the wrong. And Louis refuses, um, oh, oh, sorry, on the 11th of September, he refuses to do that. So he has to come back on the 12th and in a nicely organised diplomatic arrangement, he wears a cloak over his underwear. Um, and then uh, the, the peace is arranged. And indeed, then he, after taking a promise never to uh, come back to England or pursue the crown, he returns um, to, to France, uh, never, never to return. And was his claim to the throne, because in those days, English and French history, you know, it was extremely intertwined, wasn't it? So was his claim good to the throne? Well, I mean, you know, it, his claim was really by election, effectively, by the rebels. So what, you know, these castles have done effectively in their resistance has protected the Plantagenet line. What's so complicated about this particular civil war is it's really an international confrontation. It involves northern France, Brabant, Flanders and England. It's it's being fought out between people who have land holdings on both sides of the channel. It's you know, it's an enormously complex um, uh, struggle for supremacy. And I think one of the important things about the Battle of Lincoln, of course, is that it is rather like the Battle of Hastings in 1066. To the royalists, it's a trial by ordeal, a trial by battle of the justice of their cause. So the Battle of Lincoln is very important, and, and the Fair of Lincoln is very important, because it sort of demonstrates to the royalist satisfaction that 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 right is on their side. Um, and I suppose by the same token, it implies to Prince Louis, who's not actually present at the battle, of course, um, that may maybe he's in the wrong place. And God is not on his side, because that was very important, wasn't it? it? It is indeed, it is. And so the castles involved were damaged, but not terminally so. 
No, well, all the castles involved are then, you know, invested in in the early years of Henry III's reign, and all of them show evidence of that. So at Lincoln, there's a new gatehouse built. Um, at Dover, there's a fantastic series of new fortifications, and indeed, still the tap the the gatehouse that was uh, destroyed in the fighting. Parts of that are still, you know, visible and accessible, but that is all kind of reconstructed. Dover, of course, has always been sort of hugely important, as is described by one contemporary chronicler, Matthew Paris, as the key of England because of its control of this short sea crossing with the continent. So Dover is hugely invested in. Windsor is a peculiar thing because we don't really know very much about what happened at the Siege of Windsor. I mean, we just don't really have the chronicle accounts that describe what happened in any detail. It is massively expanded by Henry III, again, who builds a palace you know, within the walls and creates a chapel that is that we now know in its rebuilt form as St George's Chapel. But um, uh, all, you know, all these castles are, are, are invested in again. All of them are enormously you know, important in this period as centres of royal authority. And I should say also that one of the peculiarities of Lincoln is, in fact, it's Chatelaine in all this episode is a lady called Nicola de la Haye, a really interesting figure and a reminder that um, although there are important differences between, you know, how men and women can act in the Middle Ages, you know, nevertheless, uh, to be noble allows you to, you know, often enormous degree of independence that's the important thing is being aristocratic not necessarily whether you're a man or a woman um, those roles come with certain things but you know Nicola de la Haye is uh, you know a remarkable um, and re clearly redoubtable uh, woman and figure defending a castle at a moment of national crisis. Interesting well I think um, it just remains that I need to ask you the final question which is of course if you could have picked something up from one of these castles or one of these moments in history that we've visited today, uh, what would it be? Well, I, I mean, this is a completely hypothetical object, but I love the fact that Henry III, when he's crowned in Gloucester Cathedral, um, is crowned with what seems to be a, a coronet made from his mother's jewellery. And it would be rather a wonderful thing to know what that looked like, because, of course, all the crown jewels are in London. Nobody has access to them. So that would be wouldn't that be a rather curious thing to see the coronets that Henry III was crowned at? And and so was he crowned when he was nine? Because presumably they, you know, would, would have been a bit smaller than the actual crown, which may he may not have been able to. Where? He is he is crowned in, uh, he's crowned again in Westminster Abbey subsequently, but uh, it, uh, for his first coronation in Gloucester, he's crowned with a coronet. I do know, of course, uh, that is actually technically. I suddenly realised that is on the twenty eighth of October, twelve sixteen. But if I was allowed that latitude, that's yes. what I would be most curious to see. I think that's a very good choice, very interesting choice. Um, John, thank you so much for being a guest today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. That was me, Violet Moller, chatting to John Goodall the other day about his wonderful book, The Castle, A History, which brings together a fascinating and eclectic range of stories from the history of these compelling buildings. It's the kind of book you can read from cover to cover or dip in and out of, and there are some lovely images in there too. To see some of these and to find out more, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com. I also want to let you know about an exciting event we have coming up. On June the 22nd, 
I will be doing a special live recording of the podcast with the brilliant young historian Oscar Jensen at the Chalk Valley History Festival. Tickets are available from their website cvhf.org.uk. I hope to see you there. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Cheerio!